Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Hill City Church in Springfield, Missouri. We are a community of believers who exist to glorify God by making disciples who bring gospel restoration to our city and world. For more information about Hill City or to support our ministry, you can find us online at hillcitysgf.org. So when I was a kid, I used to put this VHS tape into my VCR and I would watch it. If I've watched any VHS a thousand times, I've watched this VHS a thousand times. And it was a video called The Hidden NFL, right? I think Sports Illustrated maybe came out with it, but uh, I'm aging myself, I know. Um, But it was kind of like that first video where you get to dive and peek inside behind the scenes of the NFL. And there was a part of it, one of my favorite parts of it, uh, just so happened to be a quote from Marty Schottenheimer, okay? Now, I like Marty Schottenheimer. I know we have a lot of Chiefs fans who don't like Marty Schottenheimer, which is why I don't like Chief fans. Okay? I love you. I just don't like that you're fans of the Chiefs or how you don't like Marty Schottenheimer. Anyway, here's the quote. And I actually I used to have this on my locker in high school for football games, whatever. It's cheesy. Okay? But here's what Marty Schottenheimer said. He said, you can talk all you want, but when you step across that white line, the only thing that matters is the six inches between your backbone and your chest. And then, of course, that was a big speech, and the Chiefs started banging heads, and they did what they lost a playoff game, I'm sure. Okay? Which they'll do this year, too. Just hold on. Okay? Here's my point. Here's my point. Marty's point. He's talking about the heart. If If you want victory... It really is, it's a heart issue. And as we dive into this story today, as we continue with redemption through history, um, there is a little bit of a theme about the heart that you're going to see. So by way of review, uh, last week Royce talked to us, and Israel, for the first time in their history, had asked for a king. So give us a king. And that was not a good thing. Like God was to be their king, but God went ahead and told Samuel, okay, give them what they want. They want a king. Give it to him. Okay, so they chose for themselves Saul. And the reason they chose Saul is because he looked good. He was tall and he was handsome. He looked like a king and he walked like a king and he talked like a king. Here's the problem with Saul he was dishonest, he lacked integrity, and Saul was full of pride. Saul had a heart issue. And it became his demise. Saul never, like, owned his mess. Saul never admitted when he was wrong. He never admitted that he was a mess. If you're visiting here today, I just want you to know you're in a room full of people who are a mess. And you're in a room full of people who... If they're members here, if they're regular attenders, by and large, they've just come to terms and admitted they're a mess. So welcome to Hill City Church. Saul was full of pride, and the Bible says that God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. It says that in multiple places in Scripture. And so God opposed Saul. And today we pick up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And Samuel's not too thrilled about God opposing Saul. He's heartbroken about it. And God basically says, get over it. I'm going to send you somewhere because I have chosen for myself a king. That's how it's worded in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. 
I have provided for myself a king, God says. See the difference? He didn't pick Saul. He allowed Saul to be king, but it wasn't God's man. So now enter humble David. Out goes proud Saul. Enter humble David. Now David was called by God, and we often hear David labeled as a man after God's own heart. That's six inches between the backbone and the chest, the heart. So here's my question today. What is it that God wants us to know and learn today about this humble shepherd boy turned king, David? I'm going to pose to you a series of questions. And the first question is, is it today that God wants us to learn that he is into the unexpected. Perhaps. You see, God sends Samuel to this guy named Jesse's house because he says, there is, you will find this king who I have found for myself. So he says, go to Jesse's house. And he goes to Jesse's house, and Jesse has a bunch of sons and Samuel is going there to anoint one of these sons king. So Jesse lines up all of his boys, and Samuel goes down the line, and they look good now. They had that outward appearance, and, and Samuel looks at him. He's like, not that guy, not that guy, not that guy, and goes all the way down the line. And the king who he is supposed to anoint isn't even in the lineup. Why? What is he looking for? Look at verse 7, and we learn what God's looking for. He said, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So you have this lineup, and Samuel's like, he's not here. You go down to verse 11, and here's what Samuel says. He says, Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Is it that God wants us to learn that he is into the unexpected? David is the runt of the family. He is the last person anyone was going to pick out of that family to be anointed king, but he is who God wanted to anoint king. Now, why did God choose David? Verse 7 told us, because God's looking at the heart But we can see a little bit more into this if we read in Psalms chapter 78. We see a couple verses in Psalm 78 that says this. He, meaning God, chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. Now look at verse 72. With integrity of heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand 
Why did God choose David? Because he was doing a little behind-the-scenes grunt, junk job. And you know how he did it? With all of his heart and with full integrity. Like, in his mind wasn't this, oh, I'll just wait to give it my all once I get the big job. So is it today that maybe God would want us to see in this story that we need to work diligently and faithful in what he has given us today? Perhaps. Perhaps. Because here's the deal. David gets anointed, right? Samuel sees him. This is the guy. He anoints him king, which is different than him taking the throne. He was just anointed. But what did he do after he was anointed? You know what he did? He went right back to the dirty, nasty sheep in the fields, and he did his job. Like he didn't get anointed, jump on Samuel's horse, say, get me to the palace so I can start arranging furniture, making this place how I want it. Had he done that, Saul would have cut his head off. But he wasn't going to do that anyway because that's not the type of heart that David had. David had the right heart attitude. He stayed faithful in his job of the day. So may I take this time to talk to the grinders in the room, the behind the scenes, no glory grinders in the room. I want you to know something. God sees you. Stay faithful. Those people that get up every Sunday morning and they go get a trailer and they're here at 6.30 a.m. setting all of this up who you all never see, God sees you. To the men and women who work with our kids, teaching them the gospel and wiping things that come out of whatever holes they come out of over there. God sees you to that humble college student who barely has a dime to their name but you faithfully give to this church God sees you stay faithful stay diligent maybe Maybe that's what God has you here today to learn. David, privately anointed king. Only people that saw this were his family, his brothers and dad. He's anointed king in private. You know what he does? He goes back to the fields and he's privately shepherding sheep, nasty sheep. And why is he doing that? Because God is preparing him to publicly lead a kingdom. Now, if you've been with us through this series, does that sound familiar? Abraham, Moses. You may not be happy with where you are right now, but God is preparing you for something. And that is what happened with David. He goes back to the fields. Now, the rest of chapter 16 uh, just so happens to uh, give us a little coincidence. And Royce talked about it last week. If you didn't hear it, I, I highly uh, suggest going and listen to the podcast. But King Saul like loses his mind. Has a, he just can't even 
think right. And he's like, the only thing that will calm his nasty spirit is that he needed this shepherd boy to come play some music for him. This shepherd boy named David just so happened to be a great musician, and it was the only thing that could calm Saul's spirit. So the rest of chapter 16, we see coincidentally now David is in the very palace where he will one day reign. But Saul's still king. So we pick up then in chapter 17. Um, I don't know if you guys know this. There's this story in the Bible. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, it's about a little guy that kills a really big guy. And the story is David and Goliath. And we get into chapter 17 and we enter this epic story. See, Israel is at war with the Philistines. And in verse 3 of chapter 17, we dive into this epic story. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath. Let me say that again. There came out from among the Philistines a champion named Goliath. And I mean, he is talking all kinds of smack. But you have this big giant. It says after that, it says that he's Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Let me just tell you something. That's huge. Nobody in here right now is six cubits and a span. Not even big O. I see you back there, buddy. So these Philistines are scared to death of this guy. And to summarize the story, David comes on the scene. He's just bringing some food to his brothers who are soldiers in this battle. And he hears some conversation. But here's what he hears. First of all, he hears this giant talking smack. But then he hears what will happen to the guy who beats this giant. And he's like, whoa, whoa wait a minute. Wait, what will the guy get that beats this guy? He gets all, he, wait, he's going to be rich, and the king's going to give him a daughter, and he'll be free for the rest of it. Am I hearing this right? And his brother comes up to David, and he's like, get out of here. You're just being a punk. You're just here to see people die. You don't even know what you're doing here. Leave. And David's like, man, I'm just asking a question. And he walks away from his brother, and he goes to the other campfire just down the way, and he says, now, wait a minute. I heard this over here, but tell me, is this real, like, I can be rich and I'm going to get the king's daughter. Like, that's what's going to happen if I beat this guy. And he's like, first of all, God can take this fool. What is everybody scared about? And is it that God wants us <laughs> to learn how to fight giants? Is that what God wants to teach us here today? Like, are there some, like, like now's the time where I can start unpacking some things. Like, what about internal giants? We talk about some internal giants, right? Some anger, some pride, 
some greed. Like those are some internal giants. Maybe that we could read this story and be like, yeah, God wants me to just take down those giants because they're, they're just ruining my life. Or maybe they're external giants that we could unpack and talk about, like circumstances of your life. Like maybe you're in a job that's horrible. Maybe there's a family situation and it's that, oh, is it that we go to this story of David and Goliath and learn about fighting our giants? Is it that God wants us to learn how to face our fears? Goliath is talking all kinds of smack. Listen to me. The Israeli soldiers are paralyzed with fear. So let me ask you this question. What are you most afraid of? And I want you to think about it. I just want you to hold on to it for a little bit. What are you most afraid of? Losing? Like losing love? Losing wealth? <laughs> losing health? Losing a loved one? What are you most afraid of? The Israeli soldiers were paralyzed by fear. They're paralyzed for a reason. If you go to verse 8, we can get a little glimpse into Goliath's personality. Like he wants a fight. He is a big, remember, champion. He wants a fight. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. Like, I want to fight. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly Greatly afraid. Everyone there was paralyzed by fear. But then you go down to verse 33. David comes on the scene. His brother's like, get lost. You can't do this. Then he goes to the king in verse 33. Here's what Saul says after David says, God has this. Why would you let this guy talk about our God that way? And he goes to Saul, and Saul says in verse 33, And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. So is it that God today would want us to look at this and see that courage and fear are both contagious? Is it that maybe God would want to teach that the way to victory is to not be addicted to the approval of others? David's brother didn't want him around. His dad didn't want him down there. The king said he couldn't do it. He did not have the approval of others. Is it that God wants us to learn that the approval of others is not as important as we may think? Perhaps. 
Maybe God wants us to evaluate our speech. So you can go to chapter 17. You see in verse 24 and 25, and all the Israelites and Saul, all they're talking about is the giant, Goliath, he, him, the champion. That's, that's what they're talking about. That's where their focus is. Go to verse 45. And this isn't the only place David does this. And you can look at this and be like, man, this, look, this, this cocky little kid, what's he doing? No, listen to me. His speech shows us his focus. Israel is focused on the giant. Go to verse 45. And this is David saying it right to this giant's face. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with the sword and with the spear and with the javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you in my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Who is David talking about? What dominated his speech? So is it that you're always talking about the giants in your life, and you're not talking about God? You're not talking about the battle is the Lord's. And perhaps that is what God may have you here to hear today. Perhaps. So David tells Goliath exactly what he's going to do to him. And then you know what he did? He did it. <laughs> like he got a stone, he put it in a sling, and he threw it, and it crushed Goliath's skull, and he cut his head off, and he holds his head up, and he slays the giant. Like, we know this story. David then becomes a commander in Saul's army. He wins all kinds of uh, fame because of it. And then eventually he's going to begin his reign. Are there several, several things that we could look to this passage and learn? Of course. But as we look at this story, as it relates to the redemption through history, what is it that we have to see? We have to see. Because here's the deal, guys. Here's my concern. I think we do this a lot. I'm guilty of it, so I'll just give you that transparency. A lot of times I think most of us go to the Bible when we go to the Bible, and we go to it and we look and to find ourselves. Right? We immediately open the Bible, start reading, like, okay, where do I fit into this story? And, and, and I, that concerns me because we need to make it a habit to go to the Bible to find God before we go to the Bible to find ourselves. Like, this series is called Redemption Through History. Like, it's not redemption through our story. You hear me? You get, like, you, hear, you get that, right? 
It's not redemption through our story. It's redemption through his story. So that's how we got to go to the word. So do we go to this story of David and Goliath? Like, is it, how does this fit? And I'm going to try to be a little bit sarcastic here, but like, is this a story about an underdog? <laughs> like, is this what, have we reduced this story to this ultimate underdog story? Like, we're going to look at this story and go, man, we got to have courage in the face of our fear. And those aren't bad things, right? We, we're going to look at this story and be like, we got to face our giants. And maybe those aren't bad things. But we look at Goliath and it's like, oh, he's a picture of the fears and the things in our life that we got to learn to dominate and take down, right? We can't reduce it to that, guys. I think God has more for us this morning. I don't believe Goliath is primarily a picture of these fears and this thing that we have to take down. I do believe Goliath is a picture of unwise courage. He had courage, didn't he? I think he's a picture of unwise courage. Like, how did Goliath get his courage? And I would argue that he got his courage the same way the world still gets their courage today. Like, he had a high self-esteem. Nobody believed in Goliath more than Goliath. Like, he eliminated his fears. He visualized success. Why right? We've read all this in books. Visualize our success. We can't even let an, a drop of not succeeding enter into our mind or that will dominate, right? And we're just going to talk ourselves out of things and into things. And that's how we're going to get our courage and it's unwise courage. Because Goliath had high self-esteem. He didn't have any fear. And here's the deal. That's what led to his death. Like, he did it so well, he became out of touch with reality. He did not respect his opponent. Because his self-esteem was too high. Like, he didn't even think that he could be defeated by this opponent, and it cost him. It's like, so Oakley, I have a little girl. She's two, right? She, she's courageous, but it's unwise courage. Listen, like, she's out of touch with reality, y'all. She gets on a kitchen table and has no idea how far the floor is away from her head. That's unwise courage. I think I got a text last week from Jane. It's like, uh, I think Oakley has a concussion. <laughs> There'll be many more of those texts, I'm sure. Here's my point. Unwise courage. So do we enter the story as Goliath? I don't think so. Okay, now you're like, Brad, let's go. I know I know who I want to, I know where I want to enter the story. Do we enter the story as David? Like God's man, the man after God's own heart. We want to enter the story as David, and here's the deal. We sleep better doing that, don't we? That one makes us, dads, men, we want to be David. Like we want to be able to throw a rock 150 miles an hour and crush a guy's skull. I do. 
Not, not literally a guy's skull. We can't enter the story as David. So let me get real with you. And this may not sit well at first, but it is truth. So before I tell you this, this is what I believe. I believe what I'm getting ready to tell you. I wholeheartedly believe this is what God has for us today. As we look at this story through redemption, through history, and how it fits into the big picture. So, heads up. Um, I'm not Goliath, and you are not Goliath. And I am not David, and you are not David. I am with the people who were paralyzed by fear, unwilling and unable to step out and fight this giant, shaking in my boots, scared to death. That is me, and that is you, and that is all of humanity in the face of sin and death. Go back to the words. How do they say this, right? Verse 7 talks about a champion. You can go to verse 23, and here it is again. I mean, it's even hard to read, to hear how they word this. And it says, as he talked with them, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath. The champion. But let's take a look at his dialogue. It's very important that we look at this dialogue because we cannot miss this. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 17, go back to verse 9. I want to reread this, but I've got to emphasize some things here. Look at verse 9. He says, choose. Well, after he says, choose a man to fight me, verse 9, he says, if he, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your slaves. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our slaves. And Saul and Israel are scared to death. And you know how the story ends. David kills the giant. And the champion is no more. And now there is a new champion. And look how he becomes the champion. David saves them through his weakness. Like he's small, he's weak, he's laughable. Goliath does not give him the respect that he needed. And it was because of the way Goliath viewed him in his weakness that David was able to kill Goliath. David saved all of Israel through his weakness. And what is it that God gives frightened, incapable people 
Like, what does he do? You're hopeless, and you're weak, and you're frightened. And what does God do? Quit being hopeless. Quit being weak. Quit being scared. No. You know what he does? He gives them a champion. A savior. And don't miss how God did it. In this battle, David and Goliath, God did it. Hear me out. He did it through substitution and imputation. I'll say it again. He did it through substitution and imputation. David saves Israel as a substitute whose victory will be imputed to his people. Here's what that means. Whatever David did, whatever he did, would be true of Israel. That's why you saw how Goliath worded it. If he beats me, we will be your slaves. He didn't say, if he beats me, I will be his slave. If he beats me, we will all be his slave. That's not how it goes. Whatever David did was going to be true of Israel. His people would win. Listen to this. Israel won on that day. Not David. Israel won on that day. And listen to me. None of them took even one step toward the enemy. But they won. When David went to fight Goliath... We think he was fighting for his people, but he wasn't. He was fighting as his people. And whatever he did would be imputed to them. Now here's a big one. It had nothing to do with Israel's performance. Did you get that? It had nothing to do with Israel's performance. It did have to do with David's performance. David, the champion. Now, if you've been with us, what I'm getting ready to tell you, be familiar. There's a guy from the tribe of Judah. His name is Simone, spelled salmon, pronounced Simone. From the tribe of Judah. He married a girl. He married a girl named Rahab. You remember Rahab? A guy from the tribe of Judah marries Rahab. Together they had a son whose name was Boaz. And Boaz married this girl named Ruth. And they had a son named Obed. And then Obed became the father of a guy named Jesse who had a bunch of boys. And his runt was named David. And that is our champion. But it foreshadows something. It foreshadows a better champion. It foreshadows a true and better David. See, a key chapter in this story of the life of this shepherd boy turned king is 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's called the Davidic covenant. God makes a covenant with this David who he called to be king. God makes a covenant. Here's what he said. David, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to have a place for your, my people. I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you a house for the Ark of the Covenant. And he goes, then, David, I'm going to give you a son that will reign after you. 
and then I will give you a kingdom that will last forever. That's what God told David. I will give you a kingdom that will last forever. Then we go to the New Testament in the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verse 9. And a multitude that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There is our true and better David. And here's the great thing about that true and better David, Jesus Christ. Whatever is true of Jesus is true of us who are in him. Jesus saved us through substitution and imputation. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Let me unpack it a little bit. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's Jesus. He knew no sin. But here's what he did. He took your sin. He took my sin. He took all the sins of the whole world. And he became that. <sighs> on himself. All sins of humanity on Jesus. And what happened? So that in him, we, that's you and me, might become the righteousness of God. So God, Jesus takes his righteousness off and he covers us with his righteousness. It's called the great exchange. All of our junk, all the junk of all mankind on Jesus, on the cross, killed. We get Jesus' righteousness. That is imputation. And whatever is true of Jesus is true of us if we are in him. Isaiah 61.10 gives us a picture of this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. Who clothed you in salvation? You. He clothed you in salvation. He covered you in salvation. And it goes on to say, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Listen to me. I don't care what you did last night. I don't, care, I don't care what you did this morning. I don't care what you did last year. I don't care what you did 20 years ago when you were in college. Listen to me. If you are in Jesus, you are covered in his righteousness. His righteousness has been imputed to you. It had nothing to do with your performance. but it does have to do with Jesus' performance. So let me ask this. I want to revisit this question. I hope you've been thinking about it. What's your greatest fear? I asked you earlier. Did you process that at all? What is your greatest fear? Because I would argue this. Here's what it should be. To go through life without a champion. To go through life without a savior. And ultimately what that would mean is that you would be separated from God. That should be your biggest fear. But like, how are we separated from God? Or how are we no longer separated from God? Because here's what I know. Some of you in this room believe that it's up to you. Like you believe the myth of the two buckets. That's what I call it. The myth of the two buckets. Like, what's the myth of the two buckets? I'm telling you, a lot of people believe this. 
And my fear is that if you believe this myth of the two buckets, the reality is that you don't believe the gospel and that you don't know your champion, that you don't know your savior. And the myth of the two buckets is this. You think life comes down to this. I've got this good bucket and I've got this bad bucket. And I'm going to do all I can to put as much in this good bucket as possible. But I know I'm going to put some things in this bad bucket. Boy, I just hope at the end of my life that my good bucket outweighs my bad bucket and the Lord lets me in. You know how many people believe that junk? Listen, that is anti-gospel. And to believe it is this, is to believe you are your own champion. Do you believe you are your own champion this morning? Because I pray to God you leave here today and that weight is removed from your shoulders because you cannot bear that burden. Hebrews chapter 11, it's this chapter that talks about all these people, so many of the people anyway, that we've talked about through this redemption through history, like all these faithful people. And David is mentioned as those faithful people, as one of them faithful people. And God points to them, so that great faith. And thank goodness we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness of these faithful who have gone on before us. But then it says this, don't fix your eyes on that faithful cloud of witness. Know they're there. Know they were existed. Look, at, look to their examples. But then in chapter 12, it says, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Can I reword that to mean the exact same thing? Fix your eyes on Jesus, the champion of our faith. Jesus, who imputed, he was perfect and righteous, and he took it off of himself, and he puts it on us if we are in him. See, David saved his people through his weakness, and Jesus saved us through his weakness. David risked his life. He went before this giant. He could have been killed. He risked his life to save Israel. But our true and better David did even more than that. He didn't just risk his life. He gave his life. Why would he do that? Why would he become something that was so anti-him? He became sin on the cross. Why would he do that? And why would he give us his righteousness why would he become our substitute on the cross and then impute his righteousness? Why would he do that? Hebrews 12 goes on to say, for the joy that was set before him, he endured it. And you know what the joy that was set before him? It's you and you and you and you and you. And I can go all across this room for the joy that was set before him. That's why he did it. He became our champion We have a champion. And listen, here's a great thing. I'm, this is not like rebuke. I'm telling you, this is rejoice. We have a champion and we are not it. Praise God. We have a champion and we don't have to be it. Dads, look at me, dads. Hey, take the load off. You do not have to be the champion for your family. You have a champion. And the best thing you could do in your dad role is to point your family to the champion. Moms, I won't leave you out. I know we got a lot of moms. They wrestle 
and, 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 and just anguish day in, day out. Am I a good mom? I don't want to put my identity in being a mom, but man, it's so much of who I am. You have a champion, moms. And let me be the first to tell you, I don't care how you cut your peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in little triangles or circles or happy faces. I don't have anything to do with how good of a mom you are. Point them babies to Jesus. Point them to the champion. To the man or woman in this room who's been to hell and back in the world of addiction. You have a champion. To the girl who's been mistreated by every single man in their life. You have a champion. Here's what's weird. It's hard to grasp. Through Jesus' championship, we get to be champions. I didn't just contradict myself. That's just how God works. We have a champion, and we are not it. And through his championship, we get to be championship. Praise God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, God, thank you for these Old Testament pictures of Jesus. And ultimately, above all, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.